Open your Bible, please, to Psalm 139, that we might read together some scriptures on the subject of God's great creative work. I tried to speak to you last week on some of the presuppositions of evolution, showing that this is mere theory and cannot be substantiated factually nor scientifically, but is in reality scientism that must be accepted as religious faith. I wish to continue this thought by dealing with the subject that evolution and Christianity are absolutely irreconcilable. They're not compatible, and there is no way under God's heaven that these two systems can be wed together. For one stands in antithesis to the other, and one is a system of anti-Christian presuppositionalism, whereas the other, creation, is based upon the revelation of God's Word and of our faith in that Word. So in Psalm 139 we read, beginning with verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. And I'll tell you right now, for these people who don't believe that there is life, until after birth, and that there is no life in the first three months of conception, need to read that verse carefully, for it plainly says that my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. doesn't say when, when my material parts were made in secret, but when I, the personality, genetically as well as physically, was made in secret, that is, at conception and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, not completely formed. And in thy book, in thy book, even before the members could be scientifically and medically spelled out and detected, nevertheless, he says, and in thy book, all my members, all the parts of my body were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. When as yet there was none of them. I want to give to you a quote from Dr. Henry Morris. But before I do, in order to give some value to his words, let me tell you something about him. Dr. Henry Morris holds three earned degrees in the field of science. He has written numerous books in the field of science. He is a hydraulic engineer who has either served as head of the Department of Science or as professor in the field of science at Louisiana University the University of Minnesota, Rice University in Texas, 
and for many years was head of the Department of Engineering at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute. He is recognized as a scholar and as an authority in the field of hydraulics and geology. He said in his book, uh, The Wonderful Birth of the Planet Earth, these words, The marvel of life can only be explained by creation. The marvel of life can only be explained by creation. One of the strangest phenomena of our supposedly scientific age is the insistent faith, now get his words, the insistent faith held by many scientists underscored in parenthesis exclamation mark with some question, the insistent faith held by many scientists that somewhere, somehow, life has arisen from non-life by naturalistic evolutionary processes. Science is supposed to be based on facts and knowledge not speculation and wishful thinking. The law of biogenesis, based on all the observed data of biology and chemistry, states that, quote, life comes only from life. The doctrine of abiogenesis, on the other hand, teaches that certain unknown conditions in the primitive atmosphere and ocean, acted upon certain mysterious chemicals existing at that time to synthesize still more uh, complex chemicals which were able to reproduce themselves. The replication of the replicating chemicals, whatever they were, constituted the original living systems from which all living organisms later evolved. Thus, primeval, unknown life forms which no longer exist were derived from unknown chemicals by unknown processes which no longer operate in an atmosphere of exotic and unknown composition, in contact with a primitive oceanic soup of unknown structure. This remarkable construct is today taught as sober science in our public schools, in spite of the fact that there is not one single scientific observation to demonstrate that such things ever happened or could ever happen. One would think a thousand generations would suffice to demonstrate some kind of evolutionary development, but none has yet happened. The evolutionist needs still more time, and he has faith that given enough time 
the kind will itself evolve into a different kind. This faith, says Dr. Morris, is not science, of course, but blind faith without any foundation in experiment or observation at all, and indeed actually contrary to all evidence as well as the basic laws of thermodynamics. And so ends his quote, and we will see how it is contrary to the basic laws of thermodynamics as we proceed to search out the scriptures on this subject. However, in spite of testimony of this sort from learned men, who have spent all their lifetime in the field of true science, real science. Many religious people feel that they should somehow accommodate evolution in their system of thought. Nevertheless, this is an absolute impossibility. To the extent a Christian accommodates himself to evolution, to that extent he denies the Christian faith. To that extent, he renounces the plain teaching of Holy Scripture, and to that extent, he ceases being a Christian. But these are willing to accommodate themselves to such a system because, on the one hand, they're not willing to be ridiculed and run the risk of not being known as intellectual or, on the other hand, not willing to give themselves to study in order to give an answer for their faith. Any person who has studied out his own Christian faith and who has studied the presuppositions of evolutionary scientism never has anything to fear from scientists and certainly has no reason to be apologetic for his own stand. Therefore, for the Christian, let me say again, there can be no compromise with the evolutionary system. We cannot give an inch of ground. We will not surrender. We will not accommodate. We will not compromise. Let me quote again from Dr. Morris. He says, We need to recognize that science as such can give no conclusive determination as to origins. In other words, he is saying that science, as a legitimate field of study and endeavor, cannot deal with the subject of origins, where things come from. That's in the realm of theology and philosophy, and it cannot be derived from observation. So he goes on to say, even though the facts of science do lend themselves to interpretation better in terms of creation than of evolution. In other words, a true scientist speaking as a scientist cannot speak when it comes to reference to origin. But when he must speak, the facts of science lend themselves to better interpretation in the context 
of biblical creation rather than evolution. So he goes on to say, but the Christian is not limited to empirical science, that is, that which can be known through experience. He's not limited to empirical science on the question of origins. He has the advantage of authoritative revelation from the Creator Himself in the Holy Scriptures. And so says a tremendous scientist on the subject of creation and evolution. Now, with that as background material, I want us to note several reasons why we who hold to biblical Christianity cannot compromise our position with evolution. First of all, we cannot compromise with the evolutionist because evolution contradicts the Bible record of a finished creation. Mark that down. Evolution contradicts the Bible record of a finished creation. In other words, the fundamental premise of evolutionary philosophy is that the origin and development of all things can be and must be understood in terms of basic natural laws and processes which can be studied in operation right now. What I'm saying here is that evolution declares as a principle of faith that origins and development are now taking place in an unfinished creation, in an open-end creation, and that this data lends itself to observation in the study of basic natural laws and processes. But that is not a scientific fact. There is not one scientific evidence that has ever been produced to this time that creation is still in process, that the world is in the process of becoming rather than having been created by God. However, the Bible teaches, contrary to this, that when God created all things, that he finished the creation. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, where the apostle Paul is speaking here and in verse 3 says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. We which have believed do enter into Sabbath. As he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Now here's the statement I want you to note. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. We may enter into God's rest through Christ 
in salvation. But God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, so that there could be no doubt as to this, Moses, in recording the creative account, says in verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath ordinance, and sanctified it as a creation ordinance, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Not only that which he created as the original substance, but that which he made and formed and fashioned into what he would have it to be from the original substance. So after the six days of reconstruction, God rested. And that means that God ceased the work of creation. Now, this whole biblical doctrine implies the first engineering law of thermodynamics, which is accepted in engineering science without question because it's impossible for them to work without this hypothesis. And that is the law of conservation of mass energy. The law of conservation of mass energy. Now, whether he is an evolutionist or whether he is a creationist, when he goes to work on his project, he works with a presupposition that there is a mass energy within the universe that cannot be further added to, that cannot receive any additional creation, and it is out of that mass energy that we must draw energy. And so, the implication is when God created the world, he created all of the energy the world was ever going to have. And so, the conservation of mass energy, it's there. Now, the second reason why we cannot compromise with the evolutionist position is that this contradicts the doctrine of fixed and distinct kinds in creation. Evolution says there, is, there are no fixed and distinct kinds in creation. In other words, if evolution is true, this states that all kinds of plants and animals embracing man, who is nothing more than an animal, developed naturally from a common ancestor, a blob of mud in the primordial past. So there is in the next place no permanence of kinds. And I'll tell you one thing, this would be a crazy mixed up world, really. And the scientist would really be a mad scientist if there were no fixed kinds for him to work with. 
if he couldn't be sure when he goes into the laboratory tomorrow that a fly is still going to be a fly. Rather than having crossed out of its kind and become a pink cow giving green milk. Dr. Morris had this to say. He said, he, the scientist, does not find the supposed transitional forms in the fossil record either, but only great gaps between the kinds. Now, what he's saying is that the evolutionist turns to the mighty God of the geological timetable and says, but we have the fossil record, the record of all these dead plants and dead bugs from the past, laid down in sedimentary rock. And in the sedimentation, we know which is the oldest and which is the youngest, and one has evolved into the other. But anyone who has studied uh, the geological timetable and uh, the study of the fossils therein must agree with Dr. Morris that there is no gradual transition from one to another. But there are great gaps in between them, jumps. So he goes on to say, this he then... This, the scientist, then must attribute to periods of explosive evolution. Now, they're getting away from the gradual progressive to the explosive, and this is what is so amazing, which occurred so rapidly they left no trace in the fossils. Now, anybody with two cents worth of brain knows that's guesswork. So this is what they say is the explanation. We're not going to have your Bible, they're saying. So rather than that, we're going to figure out some scheme to get around these gaps. We're going to have explosive evolution where these little fellows were blown to bits and nothing was left to give any trace of the gradual process taking place. So Dr. Morris says again, the evolutionist must walk by faith, not by sight. Evolution occurs, this is, this is amazing, I want you to get this. Evolution occurs so slowly in the present world we cannot detect it. Now get that. It occurs so slowly in the present world we cannot detect it. That's why we, we've never seen a monkey change into a man, nor a man become anything other than a man. And it occurs so rapidly in the fossil world we cannot detect it. I tell you how ridiculous can intelligent people be. That the evolutionary process is so gradual, you and I can't see it, and yet so rapid in the fossil world that we can't see it. Therefore, the evolutionist says triumphantly, evolution is a fact, and everyone must believe it. Evolutionary logic is at least an interesting study in programmed learning. He further says, and this is extremely important, the actual fact of variation, that is that you have different kinds of cats and different kinds of dogs and different kinds of butterflies and different kinds of violence, but they're all still within their same kind. 
The actual fact of variation within permanently fixed kinds is, of course, clearly the teaching of Scripture. Ten times in the first chapter of Genesis we are told that the created entities, both plant and animal, were to bring forth after their own kinds and not after some other kinds. This is also taught in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 38 and 39, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. And to every seed his own body, underline that, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. Look at that statement, to every seed his own body. That means that the unique structure, and this is a little bit involved, but it's very important, because I believe that the scientists have in this area, at least whether they ever admit it or not, touched upon the secret of predestination in the formation of each individual personality through his genetical structure and in the environmental pressures that help to fashion and form him. Now listen to this. The unique structure to every seed, his own body. Now the unique structure of the genetic mechanism for each kind, from the lowest creation to the highest, is now understood in terms of the genetic code. The genetic code. That simply means that there is a transmission of the hereditary characteristics of the parents, which we've known for some time, to the offspring in the field of genetics except in mutations where the genetics uh, go wild or genes go wild and produce something that's an oddity. But now watch it. This is what the scientists have discovered. They have discovered that the reason these hereditary characteristics, color of eyes, mental makeup, emotional stability and strength, physical makeup, and so on, how can that start out in one little old cell back there? They have discovered that there is in operation a DNA molecule that has within it as a large computer already set, already programmed, already computerized all the information of the genes down through the genetical history of an individual, structured in the intricate double helical coiling of its components. 
Now, the information encoded is such as always to assure that the offspring will be of the same kind as its progenitors. Now, there is the predestination of God in the realm of genetics. And if you have a mutation where some person is born that looks like a little monkey with a lot of hair on them, they're still human beings, and all that happened was that God in his predestination pushed another button and reprogrammed the DNA molecule so that it would go wild, so that there would be a mutation. And this all illustrates that he's still in control of everything. But even that creature that might end up in a freak show is still of its own kind. Still of its own kind. But even in the realm of mutations, that is, of messing up, mutations are rare. And for the most part, the process of reproduction is marvelously efficient and wonderful. For example, in Psalm 139, we read several statements that I think we can shed a little light on. Psalm 139. The psalmist David says, in verse 15, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. When I was made in secret. Now watch the next statement. And curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now this statement translated here, curiously wrought, literally means embroidered. That you and I are the embroidery of God. He embroidered us in the hidden places. Perhaps giving to us in this embroidered network that works itself into a pattern through a multiplicity of strings, giving to us even way back here through David a hint of the intricate weaving of the DNA molecular structure that makes us what we are. We were embroidered. We were programmed genetically. Then this statement, my substance, in verse 16, yet being unperfect, is literally yet being an embryo, yet being an embryo. And that's been in the Bible for hundreds of years, written nearly 700 years before Christ was born. The Bible's not a book of science, but when it speaks on science, you'd better pay attention because it'll be right. It might take men thousands of years to find it out because, you see, Isaiah was already talking about the earth being a circle and suspended in space and hanging on nothing a long time before our scientists would ever agree to it. So, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 
verse 25, where the Lord says, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. It's simply that God was able to make things the way he wanted them to be. And he intended them to stay that way. That's what he's saying. He made things the way he wanted them to be, and he intends for them to stay that way. Why, if I were a laboratory technician, I would become so embarrassed and ashamed at the time and money and effort and radiation that's been wasted on that pitiable little fruit fly trying to mutate him into something other than a fruit fly, only coming up with a variety of mutated fruit fruit flies that still remain fruit flies of different color, size, and shapes that are more worthless than the original fruit fly before he's mutated. And yet they point to that pitiable little fellow and say, there's the evidence of evolution. See how he changed? Well, my soul, you burn me with enough radiation, I'll change too, but I won't stop being a human being. I might stop acting like one, but I'll still be one. But I want you to know further, we cannot and will not compromise the Christian position with evolution because this is a theory inconsistent with God's omniscience and purpose and order as testified of in Holy Scripture. You see, the supposed history of evolution is filled with trial and error, misfits, evolutionary blind alleys. And have you ever thought of this? Now, Dr. Collier, you give this some serious thought. Maybe you've already thought about it. But evolution presupposes that it's through mutation uh, that we finally got away from protoplasm into a human being. And if a human being is merely a mutated monkey, that means that the monkey is superior to the human being because the mutation is always the weaker. There's always the oddity, always the misfit. And no wonder then the monkey doesn't want to claim kin with us. And furthermore, the history of evolution is filled with meaningless extinctions. Why, my soul? In the evolutionary context, was it necessary for dinosaurs to roam the earth millions of years before the appearance of man, if they did? Of course, we have biblical evidence that they walked along with men like Noah. A few of them survived the flood, but worlds of them got buried right out here in the sand dunes in Colorado during that great tidal wave during the flood. There were giants in the land in those days, the book of Genesis chapter 6 says. 
And that picture we have in our study, which I've shown to some of you, that has been fossilized of the footprint of a man that was over 20 inches long and the footprint of a dinosaur walking the mud bed of a river in the southern part of Texas hasn't yet been explained. I think it's one of those giants walking his pet dinosaur one day. Maybe it was Allie Oop. Who knows? And if God must come into the picture... If the Christian wants God in the picture, and the ultimate goal was the creation of man, why did God have to wait around so long? Why go through all this? But when you study evolution, you deny that there's any purpose, any form, any plan unless you by faith project a cosmic mind or an impersonal cosmic force into the evolutionary process, as some are doing, to give it some kind of guidance or purpose. But I want you to note again that we will not compromise the Christian position with the theory of evolution because this theory is contrary to God's nature of love and mercy. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of redemption and salvation. But in evolution there is nothing in the fossil record but injury disease, suffering, and violent deaths. And the most they can tell us is that these were meaningless but necessary in the rise of man. Oh, but listen. The Bible teaches us that God had, because of his very nature of love and mercy and wisdom and purpose, create all things complete and fully developed right from the start. And so when he saw his creation, he did not see a trilobite mashed all to pieces and disfigured and then petrified, but he saw all things as he had made them and said, it's good. It's very good. And did you know that some geologists, actually, this is, this is on the record, actually were excavating in the northwest and turned up a stone where there was the footprint of a man wearing sandals who had stepped on three trilobites. And undoubtedly, the cataclysmic flood hit them and petrified the footprint and the trilobites. And when you try to get them to display this in their scientific exhibitions, they'll turn their heads the other way and say, well, now, there must be some explanation. There is. Some fellow was wearing sandals out there and stepped on three trilobites. And the flood hit him and petrified him, the tidal wave at least. Then again, we must 
stand in opposition to evolutionary theory because it contradicts the universal principle of decay. Now, we mentioned earlier the law of conservation of mass energy, which is the first law of thermodynamics that says that the quantity of energy that is in the universe has been completed in its, whatever they might call it, creation. It cannot be destroyed and it cannot be added to. It can only change forms. But there is a second law of engineering which says that all energy is eventually converted into heat. And once energy is converted into heat, a process of decay sets in and that energy can never be recalled and made reusable again. That's why when I stand in this pulpit and move back and forth long enough over a period of years, I'm either going to wear out the soles of my shoes or the carpet under them. Because I'm standing on energy, and it is creating friction, and that's giving off heat energy, and heat energy cannot be recalled. That's why an automobile engine gets hot and runs down and has to be replaced. Therefore, when they talk about a fuel crisis and an energy crisis, as long as that energy is wasted, fully dispelled into heat, it is being shot out into the universe where it cannot be reused. But if they think that they're going to find new sources of energy, they're barking up the wrong tree. There's the conservation of mass energy, but it's being dispelled in heat. And then it cannot be used after that. I don't think there's as great a crisis as they make out like. But I do know this, the sun is burning up. And as it burns up, it will become intensively hotter. And if it starts to burn out, it will set up a wave of nuclear explosions that can burn up the earth just like the Bible says. Now, evolution cannot explain the law of increasing entropy, the principle of universal decay, that everything is being used up, that everything is running out, that everything is running down. Turn to the book of Hebrews with me. My, how the Bible spoke of these things long before. You know, some of our nuclear scientists, I was discussing this today with a young man that holds a master's degree in engineering science who works with our space program, who's a member of this church. I was discussing with him today, and some of our nuclear scientists are now beginning to believe because they're finding evidence is of energy fields in outer space that outer space is not a vacuum. 
That is, that it is a sea of energy. I said, why, that makes sense. Because, you see, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, in verse 3 we read, Christ being the brightness of God's glory in the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. And the word translated power there is the Greek word energo, energy. By the word of His energy. And so if he's holding everything up by the word of his energy, then there is a sea of energy that holds the world together. Now, tap that energy. As we are now beginning to tap solar energy, and you can solve a lot of problems. But now look at verses 10 and 11. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old like a garment, is gradually wear out. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. There is the law of entropy, the universal law of decay, spelled out in the Bible 2,000 years ago. But now I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, where even in the Old Testament they knew of this universal law of decay. The book of Isaiah, chapter 51. In verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. In other words, go out and study the heavens. Astronomers, go study the earth. Geologists, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, heat energy. And the earth shall wax old like a garment, the universal principle of decay. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. Well, what's our hope? But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. There's no law of entropy there. That is an everlasting salvation. But further, we must oppose the theory of evolution because it is inconsistent and incompatible with Christian ethics. You see, the essence of evolution is the process of survival and of the survival of the fittest. And so it is a claw and tooth struggle for existence and there's no place and compassion for misfits, for mutants, for the weak. And as a result, they can be exterminated through abortion and euthanasia or any other pleasurable death that might be administered to those that aggravate society, like preachers who preach against evolution. In that kind of context, there can be no ethics, no morality. 
It can only be dog against dog. Every man for himself. Rugged individualism fighting to survive if it means walking over a million people. But this is not the essence of the Christian faith. The Bible says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. The whole essence of Christianity is in the sufferings and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay our sin debt and be our Redeemer, and we are promised that in our weakness then are we strong. Furthermore, the Bible teaches us that the right to life is by God and His will and not by a scientistic, I didn't say scientific, a scientistic elite who feel that they themselves can determine that right for others. And then furthermore, we must oppose evolution because it produces anti-Christian results. Now, my dear friends, if you doubt what I'm about to say, do a little research. But at the philosophical foundation of atheism, communism, Nazism and anarchism was the theory of evolution. Adolf Hitler was an evolutionist. The communist Bolsheviks were and are evolutionists. Evolutionism breeds atheism. And if it says that we come from a background of animals and that ethics simply have either been learned or imposed or evolved out of an animalistic culture, we drop back into animalistic ways of anarchism. Therefore, evolution denies the creation of man, and if it denies the creation of man, it denies the fall of man into sin. If it denies the fall of man into sin, then it must deny the incarnation and deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it denies the deity and incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must deny salvation because in the beginning it doesn't believe in sin. This theory cannot believe in sin because anything you've done is simply something that's been carried over in this DNA computer process from your animal life. And so you just get out of whack once in a while and act according to your old instincts and you're not responsible for this. And if you're not responsible, there can be no punishment, there can be no law, and so there can be no salvation. Therefore, to the extent you surrender to evolution, to that extent you surrender the Bible, God's authority, man in the image of God, and the whole hope of salvation for man in sin. The Bible declares, and upon this we stand, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible declares, with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, that by Him 
were all things made, and without him was not anything made that is made. Oh, how much simpler to come in faith and bow down to the authority of the infallible Word of God and say, yes, there is a rational world here, a world filled with wonder and marvels, a world that of necessity has a rational God who stands behind it as creator and sustainer. And it is only as you are willing to take your place as a creature, as you stop trying to dethrone God with your philosophies, that you bow before him as a sinful creature and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, is there salvation for you. Let us stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the witness of Thy Spirit to Thy Word and to our spirits of Thy truth. And we thank Thee that Thou hast not left us in the foolish and confused blackness of rebellious theories that have been reduced to the ridiculous and acclaimed as intellectual. But that thou hast brought us to faith in the very beginning of thy word, that thou art our creator, thou art our maker, our God. We pray that thou wilt bless this message to our hearts. We pray that thou wilt strengthen thy cause that thou wilt raise up and continue to raise up scientists who come to thy word for their presuppositions, who accept creation, and then bless their endeavors as with the proper biblical knowledge they investigate thy creation, that through their investigation even this part of the world may be brought under the lordship of Christ, that man might be given dominion over the earth and of the heavens above in thy name to represent thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.